0: text I would like to call your attention to this morning is 2 John. 2 John. We have finished up our time in 1 John, and so now we are going to look at 2 John today and 3 John next week before jumping into Ruth. 2 John. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find that some of you, some of your children, walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win the full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Caesar Augustus, when he came to Rome in power, brought with him what is known by historians today as the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. It's about a 200-year period of peace that lasted from 27 B.C. to 100 A.D. You may be familiar with Caesar Augustus if you're familiar with the Christmas story in Luke. It's the same Caesar. And it's during this time that Rome had peace. There weren't many wars, and the, the, the legions were able to construct many overland roads and then maintain them. It's interesting, I kind of got sidetracked this week during my sermon prep watching videos on how the Romans built their roads. If you haven't watched it, and if you're a history dork like me, I encourage you to watch such things. But their roads still exist today, and and it's not just the roads themselves that were, were sturdy, but they also cut back like a shoulder on either side of the road. And it had ditches, not only so that wild animals wouldn't run out in front of the carts, but that if you were traveling the roads, no one could jump up on you by surprise from behind a tree or something because there was this wide field on either side of the road. And this Roman piece of a consolidated empire and these maintained roads and this common uh, trade language that they had meant that travel throughout the Roman Empire was easier than ever. And in God's providence, it was used to expand the gospel during this period. But during the empire, during these, these, these days of the roads being built, they didn't have modern hotels like we had. So if you were traveling from Egypt to uh, Thessalonica or wherever, you couldn't just pull off in a Motel 6 like you could today. They had inns, but the inns were dirty, and they were notorious for sin. They weren't much better than brothels. You were likely to be robbed while you were there. And so many people did not want to use them. The innkeepers were dishonest and would take take your money. And so because of this, Christians would often open their homes to fellow Christians as they traveled. So you're going along, you're on your way to Rome, you stop in Thessalonica, and you go to the local church and say, hey, I'm a believer from... Egypt, and I need a place to stay. And the Christians would open their homes and feed you as you traveled. We find examples of this kind of hospitality in the New Testament. We have Lydia in Philippi, Jason in Thessalonica. We have Gaius in Corinth. Even this week, in a modern example, we, as we've already prayed for, hosted a mission trip of guys from Alabama on their way to POW to save them some money. They slept in the very seats that you are sitting in now. That's what we see in the first century, this opening of homes, opening of, uh, of buildings to the Christians. However, this hospitality could be abused. And here's the question. Do we provide shelter and refreshment to those who go out and proclaim a false gospel? As one commentator asked, the false prophet with false credentials... Who is motivated by greed rather than creed, do we aid his ministry? Well, the first century church wrestled with this, and we find a document that states that visiting Christians should be examined. So in other words, before these Christians come to them, before they would open up their home and pull out their bread and pull out their meat and their wine and whatever and and, and provide hospitality to these people, they would ask them questions. They were to test the guest to distinguish the genuine from the false. And not just doctrine, but morals, ethics. Stott states that it is against this background that we read 2nd and 3rd John. If a Christian proclaims true doctrine and true Christian ethics and true Christian morals, then we as a church should aid them and send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. But if not, John will tell us today, indeed as we have already read, how we should treat them. Should a Christian love and help others? Yes. Must a Christian advocate truth? Yes. And we will see how those two fit together today. John is writing to a church in the middle of theological controversy. He highlights the key issues of walking in the gospel to remain faithful to the truth and to love one another. In verse one, he writes that he is writing to the elect lady and her children. At the end of the book, John says that he uh, writes, the children rewrites that the children of the chosen sister also greet them." So is John writing to an individual or a church? Well, I would put forward to you, he is writing to a church. the elect lady is the gathered assembly, not a specific person. He is likely writing this way to protect their identity. It is a chosen assembly. John writes this way, as I said, to protect their identity, and John greets those who are also chosen and tells them that he loves them in love and truth. He says that all who know truth love them in love and truth. Because of the truth that will abide with us from ever. And then he gives this greeting there at the end of the greeting. He says, he writes that God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in love and truth. So from the very beginning of this epistle, we're keyed in to what he's going to talk about. That love and truth are going to be key themes of this very short letter. So friends, this morning, Christian, keep A close watch on yourself, and abide in love and truth. Amidst doctrinal distress, John provides the church with two key facets of Christianity. Christians love truth, and Christians love each other. A true Christian loves truth, and a true Christian loves the church. First, Christians love truth. Christians love truth, and they abide in truth. And Christians walk in the truth. Look with me at verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. This is a simple fact. Christians walk in truth. Christians are commanded to walk in truth by God. Falsehood and deception are not to be found in the mouth of a Christian. Falsehood and deception are not to be proclaimed by true Christians. We are not to lie. We see this in the Old Testament. We are not to give a false witness. We are not to say something is true when it is not. We are not to say something happened When it didn't, we don't make up stories if they help us, but we stick to what is true even when it hurts us. Christians walk in truth, and God's word is truth. John 17, 17. True Christians follow what God says in His word. Let me say that again because that's a controversial statement in and of itself in 2022. Christians. Follow what God says in His Word. True Christians know that God's Word is the standard of truth. As one of the children told us last week, right? God's Word is God-breathed. It is all breathed out by God. It is from the Holy Creator of the universe. Everything that is or ever will be was created by Him, and He gives us instruction, and we merely need to follow it. Not to question it. His word is the standard of truth. Christians keep a close watch in themselves, for deceivers have gone out into the world. Look with me at verses 7 through 8. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win the full reward. The New Testament is full of warnings about false teachers. Someone made a comment not long ago, I don't remember who it was, about how truth and doctrine has been a theme of of my ministry here. And I say, well, yes, because it's a theme of the New Testament. Many of those letters were written amid theological controversy. You think Galatians, Romans, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We see that truth is important to a Christian, and false teaching needs to be avoided, and false teaching needs to be marked, and that we need to cling to God's Word. Kostenberger says, impostors do not abide in the apostolic teaching. And the apostolic teaching is the teaching given to us by the apostles in the New Testament. We've talked about this before, I won't go into great detail here. John 3 and 4 says, Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Friends, we never graduate beyond the ancient faith. We never graduate from what is in the New Testament to something new. But we fight for it. We contend for it. God does not change. Malachi tells us this. I, the Lord God, do not change. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And his word is unchanging. We contend, we fight for God's word. Paul tells Timothy there's coming a time when people will not endure sound teaching. People will not stand for sound teaching. People will not stand for biblical teaching. Instead, they chase after teaching that suits their passions. You know, most people don't research God's Word today to see what it says. They research it to find a verse that will affirm what they want it to say. But friends, that's not to be you if you're a Christian. God's Word is authoritative over your life. It's not a place that you dig for something to affirm what you want. And you don't accumulate and gather Teachers that just tell you what you want, but you filter everything through the Bible. But Paul says people will gather teachers that tell them what they want to hear. But in contrast to this, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Preach God's word. In season and out of season. When it's hard and when it's easy. When people want to hear what you have to say and when they throw rocks at you. You preach God's word because it is perfect, it is unchanging, it is infallible. John says that people who do not cling to God's teaching, they do not abide in the sound words of God. John says they do not have God. The Protestant liberal will say, Ah, preacher. The text does not say God the Father, it says Christ, and we know that Christ was all about love. God the Father was wrathful, but Christ is is loving. Friends, Christ is fully God. Christ is the second member of the Trinity. He says that he is one with the Father. There is no division between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. There is no division in the Trinity. Christ says, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, John twelve fifty. So friend, you may try, you may try to divide up the Trinity to fit your preferences. But if you do, you only affirm what John says here. Those who do not follow the sound teachings of God do not have him. You cannot divide up. The trinity you cannot twist god's word so that you don't have to heed his instruction but true christians true christians abide in god's word and true christians love god's truth christians love god's truth and they will not partake in the wicked works of false teachers they do not aid the false teacher look with me at verse 10 John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any kind of greeting. Christians, Christian, we do not receive those who do not hold to God's truth. This is a bold statement from John. Remember the condition of the Roman ends. They're not good. Even in our day, people would sacrifice a little bit and say, "Well, it's better for me to have them in, and then maybe through having them in my home and feeding them my food, they'll let me like change their theology or something like that. It was normative for Christians to open their home. But John says, if they deny the truth of the gospel, turn them out. Don't even have them in your home. Turn them away. Because you do not show hospitality to false teachers or their followers. Why? Because those who show hospitality to false teachers partake in their wickedness. Look at verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's simple, friends. Anyone who gives Christian greetings to a false teacher or a false, someone holding the false stuff, is identifying themselves with this theology. You can blow smoke in here all day. You can come up with a yeah, but, and this, that, the other. But the Bible is clear that if you show hospitality to the Bill Johnsons of the world, you are partaking in his evil works. Colin Cruz says, if John's readers took false teachers into their houses, they're associating themselves with these wicked works. The old Puritan Matthew Henry says, deniers of the faith are destroyers of souls. And there are many ways of sharing in the guilt of other people's sins. It may be by culpable silence, unconcertedness, private contribution, public assistance, inward appropriation, or an open apology or defense. Now, I do not think that John is saying that you can only have Christians in your home. I do not think he's saying don't give hospitality to non-believers, but he is saying you must not give hospitality to those who deny the gospel. It is one thing to help an unbeliever and to share good news with them. It is quite another to give aid and comfort to the enemy. Again, Matthew Henry says, God will not be a patron of falsehood, and neither should his people be. You say, Pastor, are you saying I should not hang out with people who hold to false teaching? Yes, because that's what the Bible says. Christians love truth, and they love others that have the truth abiding in them. Christians love each other. Would you look with me at verse 5? We see that from the beginning of the faith, Christians have been called to love each other. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I am writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. We saw this many times in 1 John, that true Christians are to love other true Christians. True Christians love Christ's bride. And Christian love is not syrupy sentimentality, but desiring another person's good. Love is not affirming sin, but love is desiring another person's good. And another person's good is to be in right relationship with the one true and living God. Desiring another person's good is to desire them to come to true saving faith. And John says we are to love not only in talk, but in action. We are to love not only in word, but in deed. J.I. Packer says love is a principle of action rather than emotion. So love is us honoring one another whether we like one another or not. Love is the opposite of my rights. Love is the opposite of I'm offended, I will be apologized to, I will be honored Love is the opposite of I will. As John MacArthur has said, someone offended you, overlook it. That is your glory within the church of Christ. There is no place in God's elect for manipulative, catty, devious, calculated, unforgiving, gossiping, slanderous behavior. I know it happens. And friend, if you are guilty of it, repent of it today. Because God's people are to love one another as God has loved them. And so if you are holding to some catty, manipulative plan of, I will get this, repent of it. If you are talking about your fellow Christian behind their back, repent of it. If you are slandering another, repent of it. If you are manipulating or calculating or holding some unforgiving sin in your heart, you must repent of it because Matthew 18 is clear that those who do not forgive are not forgiven. A true Christian does not hold these things in their heart, but a true Christian desires the good of God's people. By love, by desiring another's good, people will know that we belong to Christ as he has told us. Jesus said that we will be known by our love for one another, but he also said we will be known as those who follow his commands, because Christians follow God's word. Look with me at verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. We saw over and over and over through 1 John that Christians are called to obedience. Now that obedience does not save you. You are saved by Christ's merit alone, but the the merit that saves someone is never alone. In other words, when God gives you that new heart, it is not just for your eternal destination, but it changes your want to, as preachers have said in the past. Your want to changes when you get saved. And so if you have unlovelessness, unforgiveness. If you have no desire to follow Christ and his commands, I don't say to you, hey man, do better so that you can be saved. I say, be born again. Because the one that is truly born again will desire to obey God's commands. Old men of the faith have written much about this. Stott wrote it, that this is a threefold command. We are to walk in obedience to God's commands. We are to walk in truth, and we are to walk in love. Think back to the test of 1 John as we examine ourselves. Do you desire to love God and his people? Do you desire truth, and do you desire obedience? Because if you do not have those three things at some level in your life, friend, it is important that you repent and believe the gospel. Today. This morning, as we think about this text, I want to give you four ways that you must reframe your thinking about truth and love. Four ways. First, understand that truth about God is love. The idea that we can love a God that we do not know is logically and biblically incoherent. As we talked about this morning, Uh, The late theologian R.C. Sproul has said, In God's providence, the route to your heart flows through the mind. Just like you can't love a spouse you do not know, you can't truly love a God that you don't know. And while we are fallen, and we will fail to see things clearly in this life, we should endeavor to know God according to his word. Strive to know more, and not compromise on any of the truth that we see not compromise the truth of the scriptures according to worldly wisdom, but seek to be obedient to God's word. And your love for God and your knowledge of him will grow as you grow over the years. Know God. Know his instruction. It shows that you love him. Second, understand that not every theological disagreement means heresy. Not every theological degree- disagreement means heresy, there are tertiary things we can disagree on. As many of you know, I'm from Georgia, and I am from the northern part of the state in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, which means several things. It, it, it means that uh, I have a lot of preachers in my background, it means I have a lot of soldiers in my background, but it also means I have a few moonshiners in my background. I remember in kindergarten, we went up to the museum and looked at the old city hall records, and there was my great-grandfather and several great-uncles that had been in trouble with the law for moonshining. Well, one of my favorite uh, uncles, he was quite the character, uh, the only one of his brothers, I think, that didn't serve in World War II because he was spending some time with the state for making moonshine, uh, always had a good story. And he told this one story, and it's one of my favorite stories, and it always stuck with me. And he talks about making some moonshine up in, the, up in the woods at nighttime. And he said, all of a sudden, the law come down on him. He said, the law showed up in the woods and flipped the light on him. And so he took off running. Now, he'd grown up in those woods. So he knew those woods like the back of his hand. And he was fast. And so he could normally outrun the law when they got after him. But this one time, he couldn't seem to shake him. And said he run down hollers and up mountains and over limbs and and jumped over fallen trees and all this stuff. But all the time he saw those lights from their flashlights in in the trees above him. And said he run and run and run, run almost to Alabama. And said finally he said, you know what? If they want me this bad, they can just have me. So he stopped and turned around, put his hands up, and guess what? There wasn't any law. When he had bent over to work on the stove, his flashlight had come on in his back pocket and he had run through the woods for no one. <laughs> well, I tell that story because when I think of that story, I often think of some people in the church. Sometimes we get a shred of something on social media and the next thing we know, we have to run like my uncle running from the sheriff. But not every disagreement means heresy. The Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the authority of Scripture, justification by faith alone, these are things, friends, we do not compromise one inch on. They are essential to be a Christian. Bethel and their canonic theology that says that Jesus laid aside his divinity uh, so that we can like do his kind of miracles and stuff like that, that's, that's, that's bad. It's essential that we reject that. But old earth versus young earth, mill versus pre mill, ESV versus NASB or KJV or NEV. Those things, Arminianism versus Calvinism, those are good discussions to have. Those are appropriate discussions for us to have, but they are not things you kick people out of the house over. So bear that in mind, that not every disagreement is essential to the faith. Don't make essentials, non-essentials essentials. essentials. Seemingly, don't run through the woods with a flashlight on in your back pocket. Third, understand that it is possible to be doctrinally pure and unloving. I think it was A.W. Tozer. I know we've got Tozer fans in here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, it is possible to be doctrinally as straight as a gun barrel, yet spiritually is empty. And that is true. There are people throughout history who have held to orthodox views and were not Christians. Not denying... You cannot be a Christian and deny the Trinity, but merely not denying the Trinity does not make you a Christian. Christians support truth and love. It's not truth or love. So as Christians... Christ said we should be known for our love for one another, for desiring each other's good. Fourth, understand that sometimes you may have to exclude someone from your table. As Christians, we are called to practice both hospitality and discernment. It's not our favorite thing to do. But those who hold a view outside of the Christian faith and who are unrepentantly under church discipline, if they are bucking the, the church, if they are fighting, if they are causing division, they are a threat to the body of Christ. The Bible is clear. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called Christian Hospital- on Christian hospitality titled The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she writes this, Quote, It is a million times safer to include unbelieving neighbors and people who have not claimed the blood of Christ or the citizenship of the church at your table than to let a potential Judas run loose in the church, end quote. And that's a book she wrote about radical hospitality, that Christians are not hospitable enough and that we need to be more hospitable. And she says, if you got someone tearing your church up, if you've got a betrayer, if you've got someone denying the essentials of the faith, don't have them at your table. It's better to have non-believers from out in town than a Judas at your table. If you are faithful to the Scriptures, there will be times when you are called to be the bad guy to the world and the bad guy to nominal Christianity. Get over it. Because you must honor Christ over receiving the applause of the world. Friend, you must honor Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who reconciled you to a holy God, over getting the likes on Facebook, over having people tell you how wonderful you are, because Christ is the one that you will stand in front of eternity and give an account for your actions. It's hard. I get it. People will twist the Scriptures, People will turn the scriptures to say, well, what I'm doing is okay. Stick with the once and for all delivered faith. Stick with an in-context understanding of God's word. Because amid doctrinal distress, John provides the church with two key facets of Christianity. Christians love truth, and Christians love each other. Brothers, sisters, we have now prayerfully and intentionally walked through two tough books of the Bible, Malachi and 1 John. Malachi reveals hypocrisy of those who are half-hearted, those who are believers in God nominally only, Christians in name, those who bring, in the Old Testament context, one-eyed goats to be sacrificed, Those who just check the box and say, hey, we're sons of Abraham. It doesn't really matter what we do. They presumed upon the Lord's grace. And then 1 John calls out those who claim to be in the light, yet walk in darkness. Those who claim to be saved, yet live like the world, chase the things of the world, love the wisdom of the world, yet say, hey, I'm a Christian. Those who do not love truth, those who do not love the church, those who do not pursue holiness... If you walked through those two books with us together since last fall and are unscathed, then I need to learn from you because I know that I surely did not. In these past months, I'm sure that the Spirit revealed to many of us our need to repent, our need to turn from certain practices. But friends, the cross is the apex of loving truth. The cross is the apex of loving theology because the unchanging God desired our good yet did not sacrifice His holiness when He sacrificed His own Son. At the cross, God provided and proved that He would not tolerate sin. At the cross, God proved that He is merciful because He sent forth His only Son, fully God, From eternity past, one with the Father, sent him forth to be born of a woman, a human woman, became fully man. Without sin, Christ lived a perfect life and died on our behalf. He never committed a sin, he never wrestled with a sin, and he was nailed to a cross and bore all the wrath of the Father for you and I. He died there and was placed in a tomb where three days later he walked out alive. He, in human flesh, sat and ate fish and was touched by his disciples and and was with them before ascending to the Father, where he is currently at his right hand, both fully God and fully man. And friend, if you have not turned from your sin, If you have not turned from yourself, from pleasing yourself, all all those fallen things that you were born with, if you have not turned from that and turned to Christ, it is paramount that you repent, that you turn today and believe this gospel. This good news that despite the fact that you and I were born dead in sin, despite the fact that we are inherently fallen and cannot please God, that God sent forth His Son and turned to Him. If you have questions about that, please reach out to me. As I've said and will continue to say, you are the most important person on my calendar this coming week. Repent. Believe. Maybe you're a nominal Christian. Maybe you're one who were dunked as a child. I say dunked, not baptized. And you have never truly turned to Christ. Maybe walking through these books, you see, I am a nominal Christian. I am bringing the proverbial one-eyed goat to the Lord rather than giving him my all. I don't care about God's people. I care about me. I don't care about truth. I care about being liked. I don't care about obedience. I want to do what I want to do. If that's you, friend, I pray that God has opened your eyes to that today. And I pray that you will turn to Christ for the first time. That you will repent. That you will confess that sin and believe on the one true and living God, and you will believe on Jesus, God in the flesh. Maybe you're the goat among the sheep. Repent and believe. But for those of you here who are Christians, and you have examined yourself, and you have found yourself to be in Christ, will you stand for him? Will you stand for Christ according to his word? Many of you would not tolerate a man, and I know this because you've told me, you will not tolerate a man to stand behind this sacred desk and say something that is unbiblical and untrue. Will you give yourself the same leeway? Will you have a heretic at your table? Will you compromise? Will you compromise on what the Bible says, or will you stand with our brothers and sisters of centuries gone past and stand for truth, and not just truth, but truth and love? Will you link arms with the the Billy Grahams and the Martin Lloyd-Jones, with the Jonathan Edwards and the Charles Spurgeons, with the Athanasiuses of the world, with the Justin Martyrs, with those who are lost to history but were burned at the stake because they would not compromise on what the holy God has told us. Will you stand with them? Or is your doctrinal purity only as deep as social media? Will you capitulate for men's applause to have them tell you how wonderful you are? Or is your desire to affirm what God has said in his word and one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. As we read the quote a few weeks ago, there are many people in the American church that think that they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, all because they once prayed a prayer and then lived like the world the rest of their life. Christian, keep a close watch on yourself because we are to champion both truth and love. Holy God of heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, your will be done. God, I pray for those hearing my voice that have not trusted your son. God, I pray that you would give them eyes to see. God, I pray you would grant them no rest. God, I pray that you would drive them down, break their hearts until they turn to you. Father, for those who are unrepentant yet in Christ, God, I pray that you would break their hearts, that you would show them in your word where they are astray, and God, that you would be merciful to both these groups and you would call them back. God, that you would grant them repentance. God, that they would turn to you today. And for those who are trying to live obedient lives but struggle, God, give them give them mercy and, and help them to see that Christ has paid their debt and to press on, and that these trials are light, and that they are momentary, and that one day they will spend eternity with you. Father, be gracious to this church, to these people this day, I ask in Christ's name, amen.